Welcome to the Sages Among Us. What makes a community great? Most importantly, it's the people who live and work there and are engaged in community life. The Sages Among Us focuses on those people, what they do and why they do it, and celebrates the leadership, time, and energy they bring to making a positive difference for all of us. And welcome to the Sages Among Us. I'm Keith Porter, and my guest tonight is Lance Goddard. And um, the, our introduction there ta- called him a tech entrepreneur, entrepreneur, but that's only a very small part of the story. So we're going to get the full story about Lance Goddard and what he does in our community tonight. So, uh, Lance, welcome to the hot seat on The Sages Among Us. Thank you, Keith. Great to have you here. Um, so let me, um, before we get into all you do for the community and all that led up to that, uh, let's talk a little bit about um, your uh, background and share with people just a wee bit about what's, uh, what uh, your history is. Uh, you were born in London, uh, part of a big family, a lot of kids. Um, you uh, were, um, ex- as a kid, experienced the Blitz in London. Uh, you're, uh, you had a... a, a Let's see, your, your father was British and your mother American, if I got that right. Is that right? That is correct. Okay. And then you came to California with your family after the war at age seven. Uh, you were ultimately drafted in the Army, went to Vietnam. You uh, ended up spending a lot of time around Stanford, where you got involved in the tech industry. Uh, and then eventually uh, you lit out on your own and created your own high-tech company in uh, Silicon Valley as an entrepreneur. Uh, you ultimately sold that company, moved to Nevada County, uh, and uh, I think you were permanently here in 06 uh, after uh, commuting by your own airplane back and forth for a while and uh, settled in Nevada County. So um, anyway, uh, before we go into all the details about your uh, your work, let's talk a little bit more about your background. So uh, tell us about your early memories growing up in uh, Surrey in England. Well, uh, lots of memories of air raids and air raid sirens. You know, we were only about uh, three miles from uh, the Vickers Aircraft Factory, so there were lots of air raids. Oh, so you guys were in, and, a, tar- in a real target area then, huh? Yeah, exactly. And uh, I, I distinctly remember the sound of the buzz bombs. Uh, you know, you could hear the drone of the uh, pulse jet engines as they're getting closer and closer, and then all of a sudden they'd go silent and... There shortly thereafter, they'd hit the ground and, and explode. So I remember we had a window crack in the front room of the house once, and, uh, and my maternal grandmother's house had a big crater behind it, not too far from the house from one of the explosions. So, you know, it was it was uh, an interesting time. Uh, but life, that's just the way life was as a kid. I didn't know any difference. So, well, you know, we had we also had in the front room uh, something that's called a Morrison air raid shelter it was about the size of a i guess it's a little taller than a than the average person and by about four feet wide two and a half feet high and uh the idea is when the air raid comes you pile in uh with uh you know with all of your family and uh protect yourself well that's uh that's really good it's designed for two adults and one child but uh, there were six children and my mother. So it was a little crowded in there, but we may do. Wow. So this is something that was structurally uh, tough enough to withstand falling bricks or that sort of thing? 
Yeah, that was the idea of it. It was uh, it was uh, about two and a half feet high, so you actually could remove the sides and use it as a table. Uh, but the idea was that uh, if there's any falling debris, uh, it'll it'll protect you from it. it had a steel top and, uh, of course, four four steel beams on the uh, on the corners. Oh. So um, it it served the purpose if you needed it. But uh, luckily, we didn't ever have any falling debris. All we had was that. Uh, one window in the front room that cracked one time after one of the explosions. So we were lucky. Well, those of us in this community are glad you made it through and uh, found your way here ultimately. So congratulations on that. Uh, you were you said you were the sixth of seven children. You must have had a lot of sibling stories. But I guess my question is, were you the good kid or the problem child? Uh, did you get into any kind of memorable trouble when you were a kid? Well, you know, if you're one of six kids all born within uh, a span of nine years, there's really not a whole lot of opportunity to become a, a problem child. I was I was the youngest of the six. But like I say, there were six of us born from 1931 to the end of 1940. So we're all pretty close. And uh, it's hard for me to imagine my mother with all of that and no husband to help because he was off in the Army. But... Uh, at least she had help from my grandparents, but she was the glue uh, of the family and the one who taught the, you know, the norms of behavior and the values for all of us. So, uh, you know, no problems uh, that I can remember uh, other than what you might normally expect from a bunch of kids that are all hanging together. Yeah, I can't imagine there wasn't any issues, but there you go. We'll, we'll let that be. <laughs> were, being the youngest, were you the spoiled child? Uh, they tell me that I was, but, uh, you know, I can't say that I was. Uh, that's just their opinion. How's that? <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah. What do they know? So, uh, hey, Lance, your family then escaped England uh, from the, the strict rationing that was going on. You moved to California. I think you were seven. Um, that must have been a memorable trip. You across the Atlantic and all. How, how did that go? Yeah, well, it was a long trip, obviously. Uh, we, we came over in a, a, a French liner. It was called the SS de Grasse. And uh, yeah, just some memories about that. I mean, I remember seeing a bowl of fruit in the uh, dining room the first morning that we went down for breakfast. And wow, yeah, my, I remember my, my brother asked if we could if we could have any of it, <laughs> and he was assured that we could have all that we wanted. You know, seeing fresh fruit like that was not something that was normal. So, such a treat to see it. How bad. So, so we all traveled first class. We were we were ooh, pretty lucky. Wow! We yeah, no first kidding. class. Yeah, uh, it was uh, close quarters. My mother and uh, brother and me were in one room, and three sisters in the other room. My old <clears throat> my oldest sister actually wasn't with us because she had come over, yeah, you know, some months before that with my father, to kind of set up the house and get ready for this, for the whole bunch of us to arrive for so. the rest of the family. Huh? So. Yeah. So physically, that that must have been an interesting time. But how about emotionally? It must have been a culture shock for you to adjust to California. Obviously, adjusting to fresh roots would be a start for that. But but what was the biggest change for you? Would you say in, in at age seven coming to California? Well, you know, I was I was a pretty shy boy, and uh, I, I I remember going to school uh, the first day after we we got set and I got signed up to go to school. And I went to school in a typical uh, English boy's uh, clothing, and uh, that included shorts. Well, none of the other boys wore shorts, of course, because uh, you just don't do that in this country. And I was hugely embarrassed, and I made uh, 
um, an immediate decision to blend in just as quickly as I possibly could. So uh, after that, uh, Lance became Lance, uh, water became water, uh, path became path, uh, lorry became truck. You know, I just made all of the transitions to blend in as quickly as I possibly could. So how how did you manage to get long pants to blend in that way? I I think there must have been some here. Either that or I kicked and screamed enough to where my mother went down to the Salvation Army and got some for me. I don't know. <laughs> well, you, you also mentioned your family was very musical. Your house was filled with great music on 78 records. I can remember 78 records. Uh, oh, yeah. How, oh, yeah. How, what, what would you say that the exposure to music really, how did that impact your life? Well, you know, I... Um, my father, uh, when he uh, got out of the army, he was uh, uh, he, he loved music himself. So w- we always had a we always had music uh, when he wasn't drinking. We always had music playing, and uh, my eldest sister actually uh, took piano lessons and was very very good. She was an excellent pianist and played and until she died just a couple of years ago. She was really good. So. We had a player piano in the dining room. Do you remember those, Keith? Sorry, a player piano. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, with the with the, the the paper the, uh, the rolls. Rolls. Paper. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, I used to enjoy uh, pedaling, but uh, I don't think I was much good at doing anything <laughs> other than that. Uh. So my dad played a whole bunch of seventy eights all the time, and uh, he, he he was a very great fan of opera music, and uh, I guess his favorite was uh, Benjamino Gili, and of course he listened to Enrico Caruso as well. But one of my favorites uh, that he used to listen to was Paul Robeson. Yeah. And a number of years ago, I purchased a CD that was the same album that he used to play, and uh, I, I still prefer Paul Robeson's version of Old Man River over any that I've ever heard since. So, oh, it is stirring. So, and I, I, I think when you're constantly exposed to something, uh, like music all of your life, you kind of absorb absorb it into your bones and into your being. So, and and of course, as a teenager, I I did my version of Rebellion. I you know I listened to the Top Forty for a while, but uh, I I ended up taking a music appreciation class in the local junior college, and I found that yeah, I think this is where I need to be, and uh, that's where I kind of reassumed my uh, my attachment to beautiful classical music and. I got my own record player, and I used to play, uh, you know, record. I had all of Adrian Bolt's recordings of Brahms symphonies and things like oh, that. Wow. Kind of a nerd, nerdy thing for a kid, but that's what I liked. Well, I'm glad you had at least your moment of rebellion by listening to a little rock music along the way. That's the worst thing you did. <laughs> As a pretty good kid. Uh, you're listening to The Sages Among Us on KVMR. I'm Keith Porter, and my guest today is Lance Goddard, who started life in England, but now we've taken him as far as getting to California and listening to his uh, all his 78 records and that sort of thing. Uh, Lance, uh, you were in your late teens, I think, when you applied for citizenship. Was that a choice that you made And when the time came around, or was it just something your family expected? Well, how did that work out? No, absolutely. It was my choice. Uh, I mean, I'd I'd been scooping ice cream after school and on weekends since I was 15 years old. Uh, started out at 50 cents an hour. Wow, huh? And uh, so I, 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 I went to junior college after I got out of high school. I got out of high school at 16, so I really was pretty young. And nobody in our family had ever talked about education and going away to college, so I just assumed that I'd do what the rest of my siblings had done, which is go to the local junior college. Well, I 
managed to contact uh, a contract, I should say, chickenpox, and shortly followed by the mumps. So I had to drop out. And uh, but the dairy I worked at gave me a wholesale delivery job, and I could. I was able to deliver uh, dairy products to stores and restaurants. So I did that for, I guess, about a year. And I think I decided that that really wasn't what I wanted to do the rest of my life. So I tried to apply for a job at Mare Island, uh, you know, the naval shipyard in Vallejo. Right, right. You, and you were, and you they, were raised at that time. You were growing up in that time in Vallejo, right? Yeah, this yep. was all in Vallejo, yeah. Yep. Uh, and I was told I'd have to be a citizen, so uh, ah. I acquired I, I took it upon myself to acquire, uh, inquire about it, and I applied. And it made my father quite angry because I had not, uh, you know, I hadn't, I hadn't been in touch with him about it and asked him if it was okay with him. I just assumed that's what I should do. If I'm going to be in this country, I should become a citizen. So uh, I guess the message was uh, that he left with my mother was to uh Pack my bags, and he'll deal with me when he gets home from work. Well, I decided not to wait, and uh, I went off and went off and stayed with one of my married sisters for a while, and got an apartment at some point after that. And so, uh, the, the interesting thing about the citizenship thing is that uh, I, I was informed at some point, and I can't remember exactly what was, that if I wanted to be a citizen of the United States. All I had to do was take the oath, and I'd be a citizen. Ah. So I'd, I'd carried a green card for all of those years, having to re-register every year. But I found I was entitled to citizenship because my mother's born in Lansing, Michigan, which made me eligible to become a U.S. citizen just by saying that's what I want to be. Ah. But that's, it's, it's really kind of interesting because these— you know these these kinds of laws change from time to time, and I, I think only uh, me and maybe my youngest sister were eligible for for that kind of uh, uh, easy easy slip into the citizenship. All of the rest of them had to be either naturalized or or I think my my brother got his from joining the army. So interesting how those laws uh, and and, uh, and 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 what the countries decide. Is good for you, and what's good for me uh, has an impact on people's lives like that. Absolutely. Well, and I know uh, kind of at the end of that period, you got your citizenship. You landed a job at NASA, Ames Research Center in Mountain View, when things were just getting going there, I guess, right? You said you worked on some pretty technical stuff. Was it an exciting time? Did you have fun with all of that? Well, yeah, I... I, uh... Uh, I, I, I don't know as exciting as the right word. I, I, I was uh, I was calibrating uh, pressure transducers. So uh, the, the pressure transducers were used to uh, measure pressure differential on both sides of the uh, uh, the wind tunnel, so that they can determine what the wind speed is. You know, it's the same kind of pressure transducer you might have in a submarine when you you know it measures the pressure and tells you how how deep you are. Right. So, that, that had to be done very accurately, of course, because uh, um, you know if if, you, if you're going to be uh, making a model airplane or you're going to be making an airplane based on a model, you've got to know exactly what its characteristics are at what speed. So uh, that's the that's what I did there for quite a while, and then uh, uh, and, and part of that was using what's called a dead weight tester and. 
that required having a vacuum system uh, to make very accurate measurements. So that was my first introduction to the word uh, vacuum. Okay, and that, that uh, reappears a little bit later in your life and in a big way. Uh, but somewhere along that line, you were doing your work and uh, have it leading your life, and along comes the Army, and you're drafted, and you got sent uh, ultimately. I think you had a lot of time in the U.S., but you did spend a couple of months in Saigon, right, as a, kind of the first group of people, uh, soldiers sent over there? Yeah, the the uh, the the that time of life was uh, not one I really enjoyed because I was almost uh, I was almost 23 when I was drafted. I ha- wasn't able to get a deferment because what I was doing at NASA uh, Ames Research Center wasn't considered deferrable, I guess. So I ended up getting drafted and going through basic training with all of these young 18-year-old punks who were all really gung ho, but. Uh, Anyway, there were some of us who were of older years who were uh, kind of hung together because, yeah. Anyway, so the the um, you know going through uh, through basic training was was a real ordeal for me because there's a whole lot of harassment. That, yeah, oh, uh, probably yeah. when you're 18 years old, it's it's not that bad. But you know, when you're closing in on 23, you say, "God, this is ridiculous." So. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Well, they they give they give you a whole bunch of a whole bunch of a whole battery tests, but uh, you know I did really well on the tests, and uh, as a result of that, they asked me if I wanted to go to officer training school. So I I said, well, how how's the harassment level at, at OCS versus what we get here at uh, basic training? And they said, well, it's worse. And I said, thank you, no, <laughs> thank you, no. <laughs> Well, the fortunate thing, I guess, for uh, all of us, you and all of us, is that uh, you ended up uh, doing, you were so good at uh, your administrative skills, you were doing that, typing and so forth, you didn't have to use a, ro- a rifle in Vietnam, right? So, <laughs> you, know, you know, Keith, I got a D in high school in typing. Really? And, uh, <laughs> yeah, they, 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 after all those tests, they told me, oh, you can go to any school you want. So I thought, well, I'll go to Redstone Arsenal in Alabama and, and get involved in the rocket program. So, well, that didn't quite work out that way because I think when uh, my name came up, they decided they needed a clerk typist in the second infantry division in Fort Benning, Georgia. So that's where I went. I was there for a year and a half <laughs> with your with your D level typing skills. Well, yes, what, exactly. Whatever works. Well, it, it, it was it was good enough to it was good enough to to type intelligence summaries, and uh, uh, I, I guess I should be very thankful that uh, I. Even though I got a D in in typing, it may have saved my life. Who knows? Yeah, who knows? Well, uh, we we got to get you here into Nevada County pretty quick here. But uh, let, let's just uh, say uh, you, you go back from uh, Saigon. You spent 25 years at Stanford. You were working with Ph.D. students uh, in applied physics. Uh, and that must have been some inter- interesting time. You also, in that same period of time, you met Joan, uh, a widow with two young kids. You married her, adopted the kids. And uh, Joan is a MFT counselor right here, a marriage and family therapist, right? Right here in our yep. community in her own right. Yep. So um, I'm, I'm going to – we'll come back to the Stanford part, but I wanted to ask you, what, what's it like to uh, be immersed in family life, to uh, ju- jump into a family with uh, a wife and two kids uh, as a young man right out of the Army? Well, it was uh, it was a real awakening. I mean, that's, uh, that's basically when my life began. I mean, I had been living my life pretty much as – as as it was presented to me, and I think at that point uh, I could I could say that was the time of my life where I decided that uh, 
I'm in charge of my life and the decisions that I make and uh, you know, the people that I interface with are very important. And what I do with my life is very important. And so the idea of taking on a couple of kids and a, and a lovely wife wasn't something I was trained for in school, but, uh, you know, that's, that's what you did. That's, that's what, what I did. That's what you did. Well, you are listening to The Sages Among Us. I'm Keith Porter. My guest today is Lance Goddard. He's a retired Silicon Valley entrepreneur. He is the former board president of In Concert Sierra, the founding board member and treasurer of Sierra Foothills Village, and he's an all-around community activist. So uh, let's let's get you into our community here. Um, uh, well, first, let's touch on your entrepreneurship. You, you ended up, after working for Stanford, you started your own business, and that brings us back to the question of your vacuum experience. Uh, and uh, tell us a little bit about that. You were right there at the beginning of stuff in Silicon Valley, right? Oh, yeah. Uh, I mean, there was, uh, it was fascinating. I worked, I loved working at Stanford. It's a great place. Uh, I worked in the uh, Hanson Laboratories of Physics. It's where the Varian brothers worked and developed the Flystrons and traveling wave tubes that make, you know, that makes uh, radar possible. So it was a great place to be. I mean, I'm, I'm, there I was working with the cream of the crop. I mean, it's the best that uh, that you know education has to offer. Super bright students, uh, super amazing faculty, lots of uh, you know Nobel Prize winners, and all that kind of thing. So, uh, you know, I decided that uh, this was a good place to be, and uh, I, I, I used to uh, toward the end of my 25 years there, I, I was. Uh, running a, a little fabrication facility that grad students used to uh, uh, basically to make their dissertation project devices. And oftentimes after these uh, really bright people would graduate, get their PhDs, and they either go start small companies or or go to work for other companies, they'd often call me and ask me if I could do something for them that I had done when they were students. So I would do things for them in the evenings and on weekends, and uh, uh, it just kind of became something that was way too much for me to do. Uh, I was working all all evenings and all weekends, and it was just too much. So Stanford came up with a, an early retirement program uh, that I just barely made. I was just, just old enough. I'd been there just long enough, and I was able to walk with a health plan and all of my... Uh, all of the money I had put into. Uh, oh boy, those those were the days when somebody could do that, huh? Man, yeah, great. The day. Good for you. Yeah. All right, and you started you started your business, uh, which was uh, what was the name of the business? It was uh, very very imaginative. It was called Lance Goddard Associates. Uh, <laughs> and what had, and, and what did you do specifically in, well, in your business? I, 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 I had uh, vacuum chambers that I used to put people's products inside the chamber, and I would deposit very thin layers of uh, usually metal, but sometimes uh, optical films. But uh, the idea is I would uh, take, you know, let's use silicon wafer as an example. I'd take a silicon wafer, I'd put it in, inside the chamber, and I'd pump all of the air out, and then I would deposit by heating up metal to a really high temperature, and it would evaporate and land on the silicon wafer. And then you take the silicon wafer and you very carefully, using very fancy lithographic techniques, you etch tiny fine lines and patterns in it. And that then leads to what are, are known now as uh, printed circuits that go into uh, you know, 
circuit boards and stuff that you have in your telephone and in your TVs and on your, you know, well, you radio. you were there then doing the stuff that got us all started on this uh, massive tech revolution. Um, you sold your business in 06, though, and you uh, moved permanently to your home in, in the Chicago Park area of Nevada County. Uh, what brought you to Nevada County? What, what was it about well, Nevada County that made you well, want to live here? Well, that's an, that's an interesting question because we had a friends that had moved from the Bay Area up here. I think uh, – uh, they might have been staying in Penn Valley. I can't remember. But we came up and visited them. And, you know, just having driven around here a little bit, it just uh, it sounds a little bit corny, but it just felt good here. You know, I hear that. I hear that a lot. I actually yeah. hear that a lot when I ask that question to people on this show and other times. It just feels right. And, uh, yeah, I, right. I, I did know that. Yeah. We were really attracted to, to the area. I mean, just loved the, you know, the climate seemed ideal. Uh, I loved the the, the mix of trees and everything and the beautiful scenery. So uh, that's that's why we came. Uh, we ended up finding a piece of property uh, a couple of years after that that we presently inhabit, and we were able to buy it uh, and uh, make it our home. And we did weekends here for quite a number of years, and uh, we used to stay in a small bungalow that was on the, on the property. But it wasn't suitable for living full-time, so we destroyed it with a with a large machine that took about two hours to make it disappear and a local uh architect wonderful architect by the name of jeff gold all right we know jeff yeah he's been he's, he's been a guest on this show yeah yeah well he he uh he interviewed us and and uh we talked about what we wanted in a house and he en- ended up designing a beautiful house for us that we got built and finished in the year 2000 joan moved in in the year 2000. I did not move in. Okay. Well, we've got about four minutes here, Lance, to bring you right into the community. And I know that Joan served as the president of In Concert Sierra uh, way back, and then you followed her ultimately. You you served as a president for a couple of years, and you've also uh, were part of the founding group, along with Gene Scarman and others, you and Joan, in founding Sierra Foothills Village. These are very important community initiatives. So tell us briefly about that. Obviously, In Concert Sierra was about the music, but uh, what about the village side of that? What was that for? Well, the village side, we, uh, you know, we had been with the Scarmans and uh, uh, Alan Weisberg uh, to Seattle to the uh, uh, conference. I think it was in 2016, and we were kind of blown away by all of these people that were there having a conference and talking about what it means for people to be able to stay in their homes as they age instead of going off to places they don't really want to go to. So that was a very attractive uh, proposition and a very attractive idea. And uh, due to the uh, incredible uh, efforts of uh, Gene Scarman, uh, we were able to jump through all of the 87 steps, I think it is, that take you have to, you have to fulfill in order to establish a village. So uh, we did establish the village and got started. And the idea, of course, is to provide uh, services and, uh, and you know, transportation, if, if possible, to people uh, as they age so that they can remain in their homes and remain part of the, uh, you know, the vibrant community that we have here. And, and um, b- b- both of these organizations that you've uh, served in key leadership roles on are prospering and surviving very well in this community, aren't they? Well, I would certainly say that for uh, in Concert Sierra, they're doing very well. Uh, we, uh, the 
uh, Sierra Foothills Village, unfortunately chose to kick off about the time that this awful bug came to came to light. All right. So we're kind of hanging tough and uh, uh, beating the bushes, trying to uh, trying to uh, keep ourselves going uh, until we can uh, uh, make a basically a second launch after this thing is behind us and and begin to expand in a much larger way than we already have. Well, I know you with yourself and Joan and others, uh, Gene Scarman, uh, with your new exec, relatively new executive director, Valerie Bush, you guys have got some real energy and uh, momentum going there, so I'm sure it's going to be successful. Really good people. Yeah. Really good people. Thank you, Keith. Yeah. Yep. You know, it's, a, it's a great endeavor, and I, I'm really looking forward to what, having it expand and watching the impact it will have on the community. So, Lance, uh, we thank you for your community involvement, but let, let me ask you kind of a final question here. If you could do uh, something by snapping your fingers, you know, the genie in a bottle gave you one wish for our community, what would you do to improve our community? Uh, one, one wish and one click of the fingers, huh? Exactly. Um, one. <laughs> well, and and I, the I answer would... can't be you'd wish for three wishes. <laughs> <laughs> I, I would probably wish uh, that... Uh, all of the people in this community who who have skills and time and energy would be infiltrated by the desire to volunteer to get back to maintain this beautiful community that we have. Excellent wish. Well, Lance, thank you very much for what you're doing for our community and being here, and uh, we appreciate that. I'm Keith Porter, and I've been talking today with Lance Goddard, He's a retired Silicon Valley entrepreneur, former board president of In Concert Sierra, founding board member and treasurer of Sierra Foothills Village. He's an all-around community activist and a good guy to know. That's the sages among us. Thank you very much, Lance. Pleasure, Keith. Thanks a lot.